Thank you, choir, for that wonderful song. Now you can give your lungs a break for the next little bit. What a wonderful piece it is. Based on Psalm 118, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? Believers are to use their gifts humbly and corporately to build up the body of Christ and bring glory to God. That was the central truth of last Sunday's sermon on Romans 12, 3 to 8, which Pastor Mike brought to us. It is the practical outworking of the principle that is presented by Paul at the start of Romans 12 that we looked at the week prior. True worship entails dedicating your whole selves to God. True worship entails dedicating your whole self to God. We saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that as we reflect as we think about, as we meditate on God's many mercies toward us in Christ. We respond to God's mercies by dedicating our whole selves, namely our bodies, to Him. That means that we use our bodies to bless and build up the body of Christ. You might recall in our study of Romans from just a couple of weeks ago that there is a major shift a transition that is occurring in chapter 12. Paul shifts his focus from uh, learning the gospel to living the gospel. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul has expounded the doctrines of the gospel, and now he is expounding our duties as believers in response to that gospel. Paul shifts from Christian doctrine to Christian duty, uh, from Christian principles to Christian practice, from our beliefs to our behavior, because this is where the rubber meets the road. And that is because God's revelation to us ought to produce a grateful response from us. That's really the heart of Romans 12 and the chapters that follow, that as we dedicate our bodies to God, we exercise our spiritual gifts to bless and build up the body of Christ. And we relate to one another in love. That is the motivating force in the Christian life, the love of God in us. And that is the focus of Romans 12, verses 9 to 13, our text for today. Romans 12, 9 to 13, it's on page 891 in your pew Bible. And I invite you to follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read aloud, Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these commands that we have just read, we're filled with excitement as we envision what our lives and relationships would be like in the home and in the church if we excelled in these qualities. But Father, we also feel a twinge of discouragement 
as we recognize our own failure to live up to this beautiful standard that you give us in Scripture. And so we ask once again for you to have mercy on us, O God. Forgive us for our self-centered way of living. Please conform us to the image of Christ, that as that one song we often sing from the Gettys, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The rest of Romans 12 could really be summed up in one command that appears at the start of verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Technically, this does not appear as a command in the original Greek language. The original text simply says genuine love. Genuine love. It serves as a heading, as it were, for the rest of this chapter. Genuine love. There's no verb there, but it is appropriate to interpret it rightly as a command because such love, such unfeigned love, such genuine love is at the very heart of the new covenant. It is the central command of the new covenant which came to Christ, through Christ. Jesus said in John 13, the night before he died on the cross for the sins of the world, I give you, that is, you disciples of mine, a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so it is appropriate to take these these opening words in Romans 12, 9 as a command. Let love be genuine. If we were to picture this, this love as a tree, it's like this love is the main trunk of the tree and, and all the other commands that follow in, in the rest of the verses are like branches on this trunk command. Let love be genuine. Every other command it, uh, stems from this central command. In verses 9 to 13, our text for today, Paul describes what this love looks like in relation to our fellow believers. And then in verses 14 to 21, which Brother Reed Ferguson will be preaching on next week, Paul looks at how this love is fleshed out in our relationships with non-Christians, with the unsaved world around us. Loving others, whether believers or unbelievers, is essential to living the gospel. Do you remember how Paul introduces the gospel at the very outset of his epistle in his opening statement in his letter to the Romans? He refers to it as the gospel of God that is centered on his son. And so it's appropriate to say that the theme of this text is we are to love one another like Jesus from the inside out. We are to love one another like Jesus from the inside out. The New Living Translation translates this opening command negatively. Don't just pretend to love others. Don't just pretend to love others. 
uh, brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we can be guilty of that, can't we? The reason that the New Living Translation states that in the negative is that the word genuine comes from, literally means, without hypocrisy. The English word hypocrite comes from hypocrites in the Greek word. It's the Greek word for actor. It's saying, don't let your love just be an act. Don't just pretend to, one, uh, to love one another. Let your love be without hypocrisy. In classical Greek drama, the actors wore a face mask. And Paul is saying here that the loving behavior that we exercise toward others is not to be an act. It is not to be fake. We're not to be put-ons. We're not merely giving others a show. Our love is to be the real deal. It is to be a genuine expression of the love of God within us. An authentic expression of goodwill toward others. Now, in one sense, love is invisible, isn't it? There's a sense in which we can't see love. But there is a sense in which we can see love. We put love on display by what we do. We put love on display by what we do. Not for show, but so that others will know that we love them. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. If you want a picture of love, you want a definition of love, you want to know what love really looks like, you want to see the perfect demonstration of love, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. At the cross, God's love was on full display. Not just God the Son, but also God the Father. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 5, 8? He says, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this amazing revelation of God's love demands, it warrants an appropriate response from us, which Paul cites in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Do you see how that verse ties into what we've been learning in Romans 12? We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in response to Christ's sacrifice for us. And as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, what do we do? That shows itself in loving service toward one another. And this loving service toward one another is not an act. It's not a put-on. It's, it's not a face mask that we're wearing. It's the real deal. It's an expression of God's love that he has poured out in our hearts. The night before Jesus died, he said to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life 
for his friends. You know, most of us will never have to die on behalf of others. But that is the kind of love perfectly modeled by Christ that ought to characterize us as his people. We will go to whatever lengths we must. We will make whatever sacrifice we have to for the good of others to the glory of God. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because the second command is like the first command. You can't love God without truly loving other people. Verses 3 to 8 teach us that all believers are members of the body of Christ. Pastor Mike preached on that last week. Every believer is integral to the church's mission. Verses 9 to 13 teach us that love, genuine love, is what holds us together as God's people. In Colossians 3, Paul lists a bunch of godly virtues and then goes on to say, and above all these Put on what? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, so all the other godly traits we're to emulate in our lives, the scripture says, above all of these, put on love, because that's what binds everything else together. The love of God is what binds us together with all the other beautiful traits that are given in scripture. The idea is that as we dedicate ourselves wholly to God, God graciously develops His love in us. And this love reveals itself in three ways to other believers, based on verses 9 to 13. Number one, it reveals itself through our allegiance. Our allegiance. Look again at Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Brothers and sisters, wherever your loyalty lies, that's where your love is. Wherever your loyalty lies, that's where your love is. And I say that with a little bit of a chuckle because I think of how this relates to the world of sports. Does anyone doubt that Pastor Mike is a Bills fan? Does anyone doubt that Dave and Cindy Smith are Yankees fans? Does anyone doubt that the more sanctified among us are Patriots fans, <laughs> Celtics fans, Red Sox fans? <laughs> Thank you, John. I got one out in the congregation. Well, the same holds true in the spiritual realm. I love what the NIV Zondervan Study Bible says on this verse. Doug Moo, who commented on the book of Romans in the Zondervan Study Bible says that love is not a directionless emotion, but a moral orientation toward kingdom values. See that? Love is not this directionless motion. It is a strong God-given orientation toward kingdom values, which is to say this, we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. That's what it means. The Lord declared through Isaiah, his prophet in chapter 5, verse 20 of that prophecy, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those. This is a 
pronouncement of doom on those who call evil good and good evil. Moral perversity reaches its climax when people reverse good and evil. Saying good is evil and evil is good. And are we not experiencing that in our day? But we show genuine love for one another when we call good good and call evil evil according to God's truth. We call it for what it is and, and we take our stand accordingly, even if that means at times having an awkward conversation, perhaps even a loving confrontation with another believer. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The way the body builds itself up is to speak the truth in love. Jesus modeled this perfectly. Jesus was not only for the truth, but Jesus says, I am the truth. He is the truth of God personified. And so we love one another genuinely, like Jesus, when our love is aligned with the truth. When our love is aligned with the Lord. We know that our love is aligned with the Lord when we abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We know it by our allegiance. Others will know it by our allegiance. By the way, when it says hold fast to what is good, that word hold fast means to glue or weld together, to attach oneself to. The same term is used to describe sexual intimacy. As husband and wife become one. It is used to describe our spiritual union with Christ. Think about how connected we are to Jesus Christ because of the grace of God toward us. In that same way, sexual intimacy spiritual union with Christ, that is how attached we are to be to what is good, to what pleases God, while we are to shrink back in abhorrence to all that is evil, to that which does not please God. Wherever your loyalty is, that's where your love lies. If folks were to look at your life, where would they say you, your love is? Love reveals itself through its allegiance. Secondly, it reveals itself through our affection. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. These two exhortations in verse 10 basically mean that we're to love one another like family. In fact, the Bible refers to us as the children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our elder brother. God is our heavenly father. And all this is on account of his grace toward us in Christ because the scripture says as many believed in him, believed in Christ as their Lord and Savior, to them God gave the right to become the children of God. Years ago, the, the 
Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote that, that song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Are you? Do you treat one another with brotherly and sisterly affection? Do we treat one another like family? Earlier this week, as I was communicating with staff about the worship service this Sunday, uh, as you know, David and Carrie Davies lead our worship music ministry, and, and Carrie sent an email saying how excited she was about worshiping the Lord with us this this Sunday, and especially studying this text together, because she said, our family has kind of adopted this as our family verse. It, it, it hangs on the wall in their dining room in the NIV version, and, and she actually brought me that wall hanging today. This hangs on their dining room. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Isn't that good? Just a constant reminder in their home about how Christian love characterizes itself. And I thought that was really cool that Romans 12.10 is actually like a family verse for them. But I'll tell you what was all the more striking and encouraging to me was something that Pastor Mike told me several weeks ago, probably about six or seven weeks ago. Something that made an impression on him, so much so that he shared it with me and that I haven't forgotten and immediately thought of it when Carrie shared that verse with me. I don't want to embarrass their daughters, but Emma and Clara were both in school plays, different plays, one of them having a lead role, the other a supporting role, uh, two separate plays. And uh, Pastor Mike... (laughs) who went to quite a few plays this spring, I believe, to support the students, attended each of these plays. And Mike shared with me privately after the weekend of these plays, he said, you know what was so amazing? He says, as much as I enjoyed the plays, what brought me the greatest joy was when the play was over, each of these girls was the first to run up the aisle and congratulate her sister. Give her a big hug and celebrate with her. And I thought, what a great example this is of Romans 12.10. Imagine if we did that with one another, that our greatest joy wasn't to be in the limelight, but was to celebrate the success of another and enter into that celebration with them. That's how we're to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Last year, the New York Times published an article on sibling rivalry. And the subtitle caught my eye. It was actually a sentence. It said, you can't avoid fighting. You can only hope to contain it. And yet scripture says that by God's grace, we not only contain it, we can overcome it. And interestingly, the same New York Times article mentioned the Genesis account of sibling rivalry in the case of uh, Cain versus Abel, Esau, versus Jacob. But it referred to them, and I quote, as the founding stories of the Western psyche, tales of murderous and covetous siblings, unquote. And I thought, these aren't mere tales, it's the truth. These really happened, and they tell us the story about ourselves, the truth about ourselves. 
1 John 3, 11 and 12 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And as I thought about that, it occurred to me that apart from Christ, we're all Cain's. Apart from Christ, we are all Cain's. You say, Pastor, I've never murdered anybody. No, that's what the Pharisees said. They prided themselves on keeping all the commandments, including the sixth commandment, which says, you shall not murder. And yet Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, extended that sixth commandment, you shall not murder, to emotional murder. Being angry and resentful towards someone. Jesus essentially says, if you're angry and resentful for, towards someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder here. This is the seed of murder in your heart, even if you never actually commit the physical act. Emotional murder being angry or resentful towards someone. Now looking at Jesus' definition, Jesus' standard, have you ever been guilty of breaking the sixth commandment? Scripture says Jesus knew that it was because of envy that the religious leaders handed him over to Pilate. The NIV, the New International Version, says it was out of self-interest. Jesus knew this. And yet Jesus went to the cross willingly to die for the sins of envy, selfish ambition, hatred, malice, and self-interest. And we're guilty of all those sins. Every single one of us without exception. In his letter to Pastor Titus in the New Testament, Paul's reminding Titus of the things he needs to keep reminding God's people about. And let me just read a very quick portion of this. He says, remind them, meaning fellow believers, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, passing our days in malice and envy, being hated by others and also hating one another. That's what the Apostle Paul says under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit to a pastor saying, remind the people in your church, this is what we were before Christ changed our lives. This is what we were before Christ. This is what we are apart from Christ. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say this statement is trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance. Do you accept that statement by God? Do you accept that statement about your sinful condition? Do you accept that statement about your need for Christ? Without Christ, we are all Cain's. We act out of envy, malice, and self-interest. But Jesus died and rose again so that we could be forgiven. And not only forgiven, but transformed. Uh, taking out of us that hatred, that malice, that envy, that self-interest that characterized the old Matt. He gave me a new heart that he fills with his love, replacing the hate. And that's precisely Paul's point in Philippians 2 as he looks at the supreme example of Jesus Christ. He writes to the church saying, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is more important than yourselves. Don't look out only for your interests, but also for others' interests. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? It's a command, yes, but with the command, there's the reaffirmation of a gift. Have this mind, this mindset, this attitude in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's where he goes on to say, for though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of human flesh. And being found in fashion as a servant, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Why? So that we could be saved so that we can not only be forgiven, but so that we can be transformed and become like Christ, manifesting God's love in our life toward one another. So here's the, the point. Paul says, if you're, if you're going to be in competition with one another, then let's do it this way, he says in verse 10. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. If you're going to be in competition with one another, then strive to outdo one another in showing honor to one another, in serving one another. Instead of tooting your own horn, celebrate the achievements of others. Be quick to compliment and to encourage, to serve and celebrate one another. This means you don't expect others to wait on you, but you're eager to wait on them. You're not waiting for others to show much how much they appreciate you, you're quick to tell them how much you appreciate them. That's the idea behind this. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's how we show brotherly and sisterly affection. So remember the, the, the central command here. Let love be genuine. And this genuine love reveals itself in three ways. In our allegiance... Right? We abhor that which is evil and we hold fast to what is good. It reveals ourselves in our affection. We show brotherly affection for one another, outdoing one another and showing honor. And then thirdly, such love reveals itself in our actions. And I almost had a fourth category, attitudes, but this attitude is so intermingled with our actions, they kind of flow together. 
But you could say attitudes and actions if you want. It's kind of mixed together in verses 11 to 13. Look at verse 11 of Romans 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I hate that word slothful. I just picture like this little slug going along. Do not be slothful in zeal. In the original language, the word zeal actually comes first. It actually says, in zeal, do not be slothful. In zeal, do not be lazy. Now this command could be applied generally, just as we think about our endeavors for the Lord, that whatever we do, right, that's what the Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, it says in Ecclesiastes, do it with all your might. And so that would be an appropriate application of this verse, but the grammatical structure suggests that it's actually connected to the previous verse. Concerning our affection for one another and how this affection shows itself in our actions. I say that because in the original language, three clauses in verses 10 and 11 have the same ending. And it seems that Paul is using this to connect them together for the sake of emphasis, to show that we're not to be lazy when it comes to showing affection for one another and outdoing one another and showing honor. You know, speakers do the same thing today. As as I thought about the grammatical structure and how these these words have the same ending, the same sound for the sake of emphasis, I imagine, no, that would probably preach pretty well. And I thought of uh, an actual... uh, a line that a lot of football coaches have used in the last several decades. Do you know which one I'm thinking of? It's a trio of words that are strung together that originated with Jake Gaither, the legendary coach of Florida's A&M University. He was the most winningest coach of his era. He has something like an 80-some percentage uh, a winning percentage over the course of his career. And here's what he was known to say regarding the players on his team. He said, I want my boys to be agile. You know the rest of the quote? Mobile and hostile. I want my boys to be agile, mobile, and hostile. And that just stuck with them in such a way that other coaches around the country started using it. How many of you have seen uh, the movie Remember the Titans? You've seen that movie, right? Remember that scene with Coach Boone? There's kind of an adaptation of this phrase. He's training them like crazy, and they're just doing all these drills, and they're like sweating, and it's, you know, they're just under this amazing hot sun about to drop, and he's just pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. And as he's pushing them in their training, he says, what are you? And they're yelling back in their pain. We're mobile, agile, hostile. And many coaches have used that over the years because it sticks with you and just on stick with you it is used to motivate the team and i think that's what paul is doing here you know i thought of this one coach i i read this that uh, this coach jake gaither that that originally said i want my boys to be agile mobile hostile that he would give these pre-game pep talks to his team and it's been reported that he actually kept an onion in his handkerchief so as he wiped his brow he was working up tears <laughs> in the pregame talks to motivate his team and i thought okay well paul foregoes the onion here but he does use the force of words to press home the necessity of serving the lord with zeal 
of not lagging in diligence, of, of not being slothful in zeal, especially when it comes to honoring others. Because we can so quickly revert back to our own selfish selves. The only way that we can consistently show brotherly and sisterly affection for each other is the only way we can consistently compete, as it were, in showing honor to one another moment by moment, day by day, is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, in zeal do not be slothful, but be what? But be fervent in spirit. Now this could be taken to mean our spirit, like fervent in our spirit, and it would be implied, well, yes, in your spirit, because you're relying on the Lord. Or it could be referring to the Holy Spirit, spirit with a capital S. The word fervent means to be hot, to be boiling. The Greek word is zeo. And that's what it means, to boil, to be hot. So it could be translated this way. In zeal, do not be slothful, but be set on fire by the Spirit. I like that translation. But whether you take it as small s or capital S, notice that it is only by the Spirit of God, our connection to Christ, that we can be characterized by this kind of zeal. And once again, Jesus modeled this perfectly in his ministry, didn't he? His earthly ministry. Luke says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. John says that after Jesus had cleansed the temple and the, the, the disciples observed his, his zeal for God, it says that they remembered it was written of him. Zeal for God's house, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, Jesus is our model. The only way that we can keep the spiritual fire stoked in our hearts when it comes to loving each other as we should is to maintain a strong connection with the Lord. To walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And since the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, He will gladly light our fire. That's the only way that we can love one another like family, outdoing one another in showing honor. It's the only way that we can love one another genuinely like Jesus from the inside out because love is a fruit of the Spirit. Again, Doug Moo writes, and I quote, the temptation to lose steam in our lifelong responsibility to reverence God in every aspect of our lives, to become lazy and complacent in our pursuit of what is good, well-pleasing to God and perfect, is a natural one, but it must be resisted. It must be resisted. It's a temptation we all feel. It's a temptation we all face. Lagging in diligence in our love for one another, becoming lazy, to become slothful in our zeal, is natural and easy to do. Yet God says it must be resisted. Again, I call to mind Coach Boone yelling to his players, what are you? Mobile, agile, hostile. And the point is that a tenacious mindset is necessary for perseverance in the Christian life. I'm going to love one another genuinely 
as Christ has loved me. That, that becomes our mindset that drives everything in our lives and relationships. So how do we as believers resist laziness and maintain zeal for the Lord? Well, this is not going to sound new to you, but again, like the New Testament writers, as the preachers told their churches, it's good for me to put you in remembrance of these things. One way is to feed on the Word of God. Feed on the Word of God. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. We stay zealous in the Lord and our love for others by feeding on God's word. It's nourishment to our soul. And not only by feeding on God's word, but connected with that, fellowshipping with God's people. Feeding on God's word and fellowshipping with God's people. And these two are totally interconnected. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a lecture that was centered on OAE speech in the New Testament. OAE speech in the New Testament. And OAE speech stands for one another edifying speech. OAE, one another edifying speech. And the point was this. There is a very strong call for the preaching of God's word, which is what I am doing right now. One man standing in the pulpit, hopefully filled with the spirit of God, conveying his truth to you. But that's just one dynamic, although an important dynamic of our life together as believers. The way we bless and build up one another in the Lord is also through OAE speech, one another edifying speech. That is just not the person in the pulpit preaching God's truth to you. It's you speaking God's truth to one another in love incessantly, building each other up by the word of grace. That's how God has designed the church to operate. In the New Testament, there are like 25, 26 or more instances of this one another edifying speech. And I thank God for how this does take place at Webster Bible Church. Now more than ever, we have people lingering half hour, 45 minutes, an hour or more after the church, just in little pockets and huddles, encouraging one another, praying God's word together, building each other up. Just to cite one example, I had, uh, I think it was two, three, or four people come to me this past week saying, you know, one of the biggest blessings they saw that the, the, the people they were talking about probably weren't even aware of. There was just a little group long after the service of young adults, the 20-somethings, kind of talked together in a group. And, and they didn't know what the conversation was about. I mean, the people in the huddle did. <laughs> um, the people watching didn't know. But they noticed that they all kind of huddled together and they started praying together. And I would say to you, how many places do you really see that happening? Young adults huddle together, encouraging one another, praying together, building each other up in the Lord. Not just 20-somethings. Do, do we see other people just in general doing that? But when the love of God uh, is filling our hearts, it reveals itself in our fellowship with one another. We, we build one another up with the Word of God. 
with that one another edifying speech. And that's why Scripture tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Yeah, you know, some people are sick and or providentially hindered in some other way and, and need to watch the service online, but I'll tell you what, you miss out on so much of the dynamics of the physical gathering of God's people. Because what's happening even in the service is just a, a, a portion of what happens when we gather together on the Lord's Day morning. We encourage one another as we speak the truth in love through personal conversation before and after the service, informally, as we sing the truth of God in our songs. Does your heart just fill with joy when we sing these songs to God? Who's your only hope in life and death? Christ. Christ. And we can sing, hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. So when you're discouraged, you're going through a hard time, how do you, how do you, how does the Lord, I'll say, lift your spirits? By gathering you with God's people. You need the church and the church needs you. If we're to see God's love at work in our life and relationships. It's essential for maintaining our zeal for the Lord. We feed on the word of God and we fellowship with one another. The New Living Translation and the Living Bible both translate this exhortation as serve the Lord enthusiastically. That's the idea. And with God's help, you can do it. Now, I'll, Pastor Mike, I, I forget exactly what he said on this part of the thing, but you, you had mentioned like a, you, you confessed something last week, something you struggle with. And I don't remember what the particular was. But I'll tell you as I read this, you know, one of the, the biggest tendencies I have been guilty of in my life that I'm not careful is I try to do the right thing, but I try to do it in my own strength. It's the sin of self-sufficiency. And one of the ways that it reveals itself is when I do the right thing, but not enthusiastically. You ever been guilty of that? Trying to do the right thing? but you're missing out on the joy of doing it. You're just doing it because it's kind of expected of you. This is what you're supposed to do or you don't want to feel guilty for not doing it. Brothers and sisters, when that takes place, that's, that's serving God deficiently uh, in, in your own strength rather than in His strength. One of the surest marks that we're being filled with true love and zeal for God is when we serve the Lord enthusiastically. It's not like, oh, I have to. It's like, I get to. This is wonderful. That's the idea. The next several clauses and the remaining verses share the same ending in the Greek. Again, I think for the sake of emphasis, let's look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, Paul has talked about all of this back in chapter 8 and especially in another part of the letter, so I'm not going to delve into this, but simply summarize it by saying that even as we rejoice in the glorious future that awaits us as God's children, that's what encourages us during our present struggles, right? We recognize that the road to glory is strewn with many trials and temptations, isn't it? The Christian experience and perspective, I thought, 
is summed up so well in John Newton's Enduring Him Amazing Grace. Do you remember this stanza? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We press on in faith through prayer. Be constant in prayer. Paul, again, he talks about this extensively in chapter 8, so we won't revisit it all, but simply say that we consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to our future glory. And this helps us to persevere. And even in the midst of our weakness, when we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, what does the Holy Spirit do? He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And we're reminded that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Now, in terms of having such a mindset, wasn't Jesus during his earthly ministry, a perfect model of this? Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says for, for our encouragement to endure? What does he say? He says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And where is Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The final two exhortations in verse 13 call us to put into practice the love and caring concern for our fellow believers that were emphasized in verse 10. I believe that Paul sticks in verses 11 and 12. He sandwiches those verses in between verses uh, 10 and 13, I think, to keep us from growing weary and doing good because the trials will come. It's easy to become slothful in our zeal as we get discouraged and beset by various trials and temptations. But we're to be maintain our zeal by feeding on God's Word, fellowshipping with His people, by being constant in prayer. We need God's help to keep our spirits alive and our eyes on the prize. And as we rely on the Lord, we are empowered and equipped to care for one another as we should. Look at verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's to say, how do we care for one another? By opening up our pocketbooks in our homes to one another. That's how we show our genuine love in part. The Greek word translated contribute, when he says contribute to the needs of others, is koinoneo. That word sound familiar? Koinonia, fellowship, sharing, participation. It means to have in common, to share. So, so when another person is in need, a brother or sister in Christ, what do we do? We share in that need. We participate in that need by seeking to meet that need. And we have opportunities to do this formally through our benevolence fund, which was mentioned earlier as Brother Chad prayed for our deacons' ministry. Our deaconesses have a meal-making ministry where we can buy groceries and fix meals, prepare food for those that are too sick to serve themselves and just minister to them and their family in that way. I know others of you provide transportation to others who don't have a ride to and from church, and you faithfully go every Sunday or on rotation so that they too can gather with the flock of God. 
This is loving service, at times even sacrifice on your parts. But it's a way that we share in one another's needs. And I have a, a note here. When he says contribute to the needs of the saints, I have a note here that I made. The emphasis is not on what others are to do for us, <laughs> but what we are to do for others. In other words, it's not contribute to the needs of the saints. So you need to start making meals for me. Hey, where are my notes of encouragement here? Right? But that's a lot of times the attitude we can have. It's kind of like uh, when a husband comes to me and wants to point out Ephesians 5 and says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. I said, that is so right. What does the Bible say to you in this verse? Oh, husbands love your wives, right? So how about you focus on that verse? We'll let your wife focus on the other verse. So when it says contribute to the needs of the saints, we don't use that verse as kind of a tool or a weapon to get other people to serve me. You need to share my needs. It's okay to make your needs known with the right attitudes and approach and stuff like that. But our attitude isn't, hey, I, I'm using this verse so other people contribute to my needs. It's like, no, what can I do to alleviate the hardships and the sufferings of those around me. What can I do to contribute to their needs, to make a difference, to be an encouragement to them? And the idea is there too with, with that second exhortation in verse 13, seek to show hospitality. It literally means pursue the love of strangers. So this doesn't mean entertaining your friends in your home. There's a place for that. And that's one means by which we encourage and build each other up in the Lord. But that's not the primary focus of this exhortation. John MacArthur notes that in New Testament times, travel was dangerous. Inns were evil and scarce and expensive. So the early believers often opened their homes to travelers, especially to fellow believers. I thought, you know, in many regions of the world where there's not a hotel at just about every exit on the highway, this is, there's a great need for hospitality in this sense. But I think even here in America where, I was going to say where things are more affordable, but not lately, right? It's like gas and hotel prices and stuff. But even so, relatively speaking, where, where travel is more safe, more affordable than it is in other places in the world, there is still a need for hospitality. And I like how George Guthrie in his commentary on Hebrews kind of expands this definition so that we don't focus on the letter of the law, but on the spirit of the principle. He says, he describes hospitality as treating a person, perhaps a stranger, nobly and magnanimously in the context of one's home, joyfully seeking to bring that person refreshment. Isn't that great? You know why I think we, we, a lot of times we don't have people in our homes? If I could just speak frankly, it's because we're more interested in impressing them than blessing them. So if we don't have a, much of a home to look at, or I go to someone's home, man, their home was so nice, who would want to come to my home? Or maybe you don't keep the neatest house. You know what? It's not about that. If you have people in your home to a, in, impress them, then you're really not fulfilling this command at all. We don't have people in in order to impress them. We have them in in order to bless them. There are some people who would be perfectly content to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with milk and great gospel conversation with you or a bottle of water. My wife sometimes have ladies in her home who, who, oh, why don't you come on over? You can help me fold laundry while we talk. 
right? It's kind of this day in and day out stuff, having people in our homes, doing life together. That's what discipleship is. According to Titus 1.8, church leaders, pastors and elders in particular, are to be role models in this virtue. So I exhort my fellow elders, what are we doing to model having people come in our homes, not just entertaining our friends, but even people we don't know that well for the sake of Christian encouragement and refreshment. We lead by example in this area. You know, I thought, once again, Jesus is the perfect model here. I thought and wrote this down. As we think about the eternal home of joy and rest that Jesus is preparing for us, what a joy and privilege to seek to bring joy and refreshment to others in our homes. How can my home be a place of refreshment for this weary traveler that in the smallest way is a picture of the ultimate home that our Savior is preparing for us? Ultimate joy and rest. Yes, Love one another genuinely like Jesus from the inside out. A couple of times in the course of these commands, I've mentioned Coach Jake Gaither and his trio of words, agile, mobile, hostile. Those three words actually became the title of his biography. And I thought, if a book were to be written about your life, what words would be used to describe you? What would the heading over your life be? Would it be genuine love? Would it be a statement he or she loved others genuinely like Jesus from the inside out? One of my professors in seminary sang a hymn each morning with his children as he took them to school, and then he went off to the institution to teach. It's the hymn he sang every morning. I remember him sharing this in class about 10 years ago, and I never forgot it. It's the hymn we actually closed with last Sunday. And as we think about this text and our Christian lives as a whole, it's a musical prayer that should occupy our minds and hearts. I'll read just two lines. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for modeling such genuine love to us, especially in the person of your son. How do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Father God, you showed your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that we are not only forgiven by your saving grace, but we are transformed by it. For your love is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that you've given to us and that as we are led by the Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, as we're filled with the Spirit, as we're feeding on the Word of God, as we're fellowshipping with the people of God, you develop your love in us, and we demonstrate it by our attitudes, actions, by our affection, and by our allegiances. Lord, continue to develop your love in us.
for the building up of your church and for your greater glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.